Hello, welcome to the Quest Podcasts. This is Answer to Job, Part 2. My name is Alan Mulhern. Some of the listeners to this episode may have attempted to read Answer to Job by Carl Jung. I say attempted because it is a devilishly difficult book to understand. I shall do my best to explain what I can concerning this book. In the last episode, we examined some of the events in Jung's childhood and adolescence. These included the dream of the underground phallus at the age of three to four years, his experience of being seated on a stone and not knowing whether he was the stone or the person sitting on it, his secret of the carved mannequin in the attic, secure in a little bed, painted so that it seemed divided in two, and his experience as an adolescent of God defecating on the Cathedral of Basel. All of these experiences had spiritual significance for Jung that grew over time. For example, with respect to the underground phallus dream, Jung felt it was some kind of revelation that was forced upon him. It had a mysterious significance and was an alternative to the spiritual teaching of Christianity that he was receiving from family, church and school. Or take the secret mannequin. Jung protected his vulnerable self, which was split or divided in two, but which allowed access to his own underworld and also to the dark side of God. Or his experience on the stone, which on the one hand was disturbing, but on the other hand was to lead to Jung's awareness of the self that was the foundation of the human psyche. His inner experiences convinced him that God was not only the embodiment of the light, but also of darkness, that the church and its teachings were limited and one-sided that the religious conversations of his father and uncles were missing something that only he had access to. He felt he had to experience God and not just have faith in him. He was sure that it was God who had insisted that he must have the vision of the defecation on the cathedral. And while he had a furious resistance to this for three days, as you have heard, he eventually had to submit to it. After this he felt enormous relief, wept with gratitude that he had experienced the grace of God, that he understood so much more, yet at the same time he felt like a pariah. This complex, that he was both privileged to be chosen and at the same time destined to feel alienated and an outcast, he was to have to the end of his life. Notice also that the grace was not experienced by obeying the rules of God, but by experiencing God's darkness as it manifested in Jung's own psyche. Jung's school of analytical psychology has absorbed all of this into its practice. For example, it is central to its vision of psychotherapy that the shadow should not be ignored but encountered and truly felt in a non-judgmental manner. Well, that is exactly what Jung experienced with his own shadow and also with the darkness in God. It was as if from the near beginning of Jung's life God had his shadow, his underground counterpart, the hidden secret, and Jung felt he was called upon to experience this instead of hiding away, believing in the light of heaven only. Jung felt that God called on him personally to realise and experience God's own dark side. And this was the only way that Jung could experience relief and grace, God's blessing. Well, that resembles psychotherapy also, because by deeply experiencing one's own shadow, 
one may experience catharsis, and that's akin to grace. We also know from Jung's biography that later in life, when he read the book of Job, he realised that if only he had read it more closely when a young man, it was one of the only books that could have helped him. Jung came to identify with Job in his story. Since Job was obliged to experience the dark side of God, he was a pariah. He was misunderstood. He wrestled, as it were, with God. Job did not take the path of blind faith in religious teaching like his three companions, but was forced to confront the shadow of God. And from this experience, fully lived and suffered, Job had his gnosis and finally received grace. Jung could completely identify with all of this, and that was why he had such strong personal feelings writing this book. He says he was concerned with the way in which a modern man with a Christian education and background comes to terms with the divine darkness which is unveiled in the book of Job and what effect it has on him. He continues, I shall not give a cool and carefully considered exegesis that tries to be fair to every detail, that is in writing the book of Job, but a purely subjective reaction to give expression to the shattering emotion which the unvarnished spectacle of divine savagery and ruthlessness produces in us. For this reason I shall express my affect fearlessly and ruthlessly in what follows, and I shall answer injustice with injustice, that I may learn to know why and for what purpose Job was wounded, and what consequences have grown out of this for Yahweh as well as for man. Unquote. Young wished to bring Yahweh to account. He explained that for many years he hesitated to write this book because he was aware of the probable consequences and knew what a storm would be raised. He wrote in 1953, one year after its publication, I am accustomed to living in a more or less complete intellectual vacuum. And my answer to Job did nothing to diminish that. On the contrary, it set loose an avalanche of prejudices, misunderstandings, and above all, atrocious stupidities. Unquote. At another point, he referred to the impact of the book as pure poison, and clearly he felt desperately misunderstood after writing it. In the second preface to the book, he writes again that he was driven by great personal emotion and felt a need to express himself in such manner. He says, But I was gripped by the urgency and difficulty of the problem and was unable to throw it off. Therefore, I found myself obliged to deal with the whole problem and I did so in the form of describing a personal experience carried by subjective emotions. I deliberately chose this form because I wanted to avoid the impression that I had any idea of announcing an eternal truth. The book does not pretend to be anything but the voice of question of a single individual who hopes or expects to meet with thoughtfulness in the public. Unquote. Henry Corbin was a French philosopher, theologian and professor of Islamic studies. There was a warm correspondence between both men for many years. And Young confesses that, while he had received hundreds of critiques, Corbin's was the only one who understood, answered to Job. In a letter to him, Young writes, You say that you read my book like an oratorio. The book came to me during an illness. 
in a fever. It was as if accompanied by the grand music of a bark or handle. The whole thing was an adventure that happened to me and I hurried to record. So that is some of the background to this highly unusual work. What was the formal aim of the book? Young explained in his preface. Quote, if Christianity claims to be a monotheism, it becomes unavoidable to assume the opposites as being contained in God. But then we are confronted with a major religious problem, the problem of Job. It is the aim of my book to point out its historical evolution, since the time of Job down through the centuries, to the most recent symbolic phenomena, unquote. that is, the evolution of the opposites being contained in God. So, Young's aim is to present not a one-sided view of God, as all good or all just, but the complexio oppositorum of the God image. This phrase, complexio oppositorum, signifies a state of totality in which the opposites are unified within it. Famous images that represent this are the yin-yang symbol, representing the unification and balance of opposites. Another is of the dancing Nataraja, in which the god Shiva, in Hindu mythology, holds the drum of creation in one hand and the fire of destruction in the other. Many mandala symbols also contain the ferocious and benevolent deities, for example those of Tibetan Buddhism. Jung wished to present the complexio oppositorum of the Jewish god and show how this developed across the centuries down to his own times. Before starting his book, Jung wrote a special letter to his readers. Like some of the different prefaces to the work, I think this must have been added to later editions since, once again, Young, in face of numerous criticisms, wished to explain to the reader how to approach the book. He explains his ideas of the God archetype, just so as to avoid misunderstanding. Unfortunately, I imagine that few of his readers are enlightened by his compact explanation of archetypal philosophy. So, I shall say a few words on this now, hopefully by way of explanation. Young begins by explaining that the God archetype or God image, as he often refers to it, is not something that is simply made up by our intellect. It is more akin to a very powerful dream image that forces itself into the human psyche, into consciousness and the imagination. It is not created by us, but is independent of our consciousness. This is what Jung meant when he said that religious images are psychically real. That is, they are real to our psyche. Although the God image is an archetype, it evolves over time and changes its form according to the culture and the individuals it appears in. Thus, the Hindu God image is extremely varied across the Indian subcontinent and is distinct from the Judaic and the ancient Chinese. Nevertheless, there is a consistency and coherence to the God image across time and cultures because there is a limited set of principles or archetypes underlying it. The underlying archetype is itself unknowable. To use the language of Kant, we cannot know the thing in itself, the ding and sick. We can only know the phenomena as it appears to our consciousness. For Jung, the expression of the archetype is very varied, but stems from a common reservoir in the collective unconscious. We construct models of these archetypal images and experiences and thereby try to understand them. But they are always inadequate. 
The God images or ideas of God are real to our psyche, but these are not the essence, which is the unknowable transcendent. Young confesses that in answer to Job, he is moving in the realm of images and ideas. He admits he does not touch the unknowable in itself. Also that our powers of conception, our understanding and imagination are inherently deficient. In particular, language is limited since it is the tool of consciousness and differentiation. Thus words can never grasp the divine image or the complexio oppositorum. He admits that these God images are full of human projections which cannot withstand critical reasoning. Nevertheless, they are psychically real and, like dreams, need to be understood symbolically. They often present themselves as mythological narratives. They have a certain autonomy and independence and represent archetypal reality rather than a material one. Jung says they are like a subject with whom we engage through the human imagination. However, we then tend to look at these images and narratives objectively and try to understand them. To use modern parlance, we engage with these images, figures, archetypes and mythological narratives with the left and the right hemisphere of the brain. The left wishes to analyse them, provide a critique, dissect and understand them, while the right hemisphere is in a participative, symbolic and imaginative interaction with them. These are two different modes of functioning of the human psyche. Thus Jung explains that he is shifting from one mode to another, from the subjective to the objective. And this, of course, may be confusing. In The Answer to Job, Jung is, as it were, moving from the right to the left hemisphere continually and back again. And this, of course, can be difficult for the reader. Another point by way of preliminaries. Jung makes frequent reference in the text to a metaphysical belief he held. In the Middle Ages, no doubt, it would have been regarded as a heresy, but many of Jung's beliefs would have fitted this category. This particular one is as follows. That which we call God, whatever it refers to, always has the attribute of immeasurable power and creativity. After all, God in the Abrahamic traditions created the universe, the world, all life and the human race. Jung believed that God nevertheless created and needed mankind. So God could be conscious through us. In psychological terms, the unconscious needs human beings so as to become conscious. But this is no easy task. It is more like a battle, Jung says. Quote, the unconscious wants to flow into consciousness in order to reach the light. But at the same time, it continually thwarts itself because it would rather remain unconscious. That is to say, God wants to become man, but not quite. Unquote. This may help us to understand answer to Job somewhat more. In Young's view, Yahweh, despite all his superiority, is not aware of the opposites in himself, but Job is, painfully. Yahweh is obliged to change and develop as a result of his confrontation with Job. God is, in this view, like the unconscious, which has somehow created consciousness. Despite all its limitations, consciousness has an advantage over the unconscious in its self-awareness, its discriminatory power and its ethical standpoint, qualities which the God image in the form of Yahweh does not possess. Thus God, 
or the unconscious need consciousness so as to be realised. This gives human consciousness an immense importance in the great scheme of things. When and if you read Answer to Job, it might be helpful to bear in mind that there are a number of different voices that Jung adopts. He switches between them in a spontaneous, intuitive manner in the flow of the text. These include the emotional Jung with highly dramatic presentation. For example, Yahweh's confrontation with Job in which Jung is totally on the side of Job. Here, Yahweh is behaving like a primitive tribal lord who is determined to humiliate and crush his opponent. However, it is not as if Job has actually done anything wrong, and yet he is so severely punished. Young is outraged at the injustice inflicted upon him. Next, the therapist's voice. Young psychoanalyzes Yahweh. You can imagine the surprise and indignation of the Judaic, Islamic and Christian believers. Yet one can hardly deny Young's insights into Yahweh's so-called personality. Next, the theological voice or perspective. Jung interlaces his presentation and analysis with highly metaphysical and theological speculations. For the traditional believer, these are mostly heretical and caused a storm, yet they are deeply fascinating. Next, the mystical voice. Jung brings a level of original and deeply provocative insight into the whole historical dynamic. For example, that God needs man so as to become more conscious. What an unusual way of looking at this. And another voice, the esoteric. Jung moves into esoteric, Gnostic and Kabbalistic beliefs concerning stories of, for example, the lost Sophia, the absent feminine in the Abrahamic traditions. The feminine is the missing side of Yahweh. More outrage in the churches on reading this. The Jungian psychology perspective. Next. For example, the unconscious needs consciousness to become self-aware. And yet it tries to prevent this happening. What an original and creative idea. That the historical drama of the conscious and the unconscious is paralleled by Yahweh and Job. Another voice, that of archetypal philosophy. For example, while the archetype is unknowable and mysterious in its essence, the image of the archetype is culturally inflected. So this story of Job and Yahweh is like a dream that has to be interpreted. Somehow it represents the evolution of human consciousness. Mm, Very few other thinkers can work at this level. And next, the historical voice. Young ranges across history from the book of Job. Well, actually, it's not materialist history. It's the history of the God image. From the book of Job, written 300 to 400 years before the Common Era, to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, written about 100 years of the Common Era. Moving to the Assumption of the Virgin Mary in 1950. He insists that there is an archetypal development of the God image throughout and that this represents the development of human consciousness. What an extraordinary range of thought. Young moves between such different voices with little warning. 
He's using multiple views and perspectives with great speed and the reader can be left confused and exhausted. Perhaps when one knows the different voices, then matters are a little more comprehensible. We hope you can join us for our next episode when we plunge directly into one of the most intriguing books in theological history.